Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. Friday, September 17, 2021, France pulled its ambassadors from the U.S. and Australia after Australia ditched its existing submarine deal with France in favor of a U.S. partnership. Well, what's this all about? found a good article by a fellow by the name of Jordan Davidson on the Federalist Civil website. And he points out that uh, basically what happened is President Joe Biden announced that the U.S. had struck a deal with Australia and the United Kingdom that administration officials said would provide Australia with the technology and capability to deploy nuclear-powered submarines. Now, in, in that move, even though it hurt an ally, the administration claimed it was necessary to push back on China's desire to control the South China Sea. They went on to say, we need to be able to address both the current strategic environment in the region and how it may evolve, because the future of each of our nations and indeed the world depends on a free and open Indo-Pacific enduring and flourishing in the decades ahead. Now it's believed to be the first time France has withdrawn ambassadors from the two countries, according to the BBC. French diplomats in Washington had already canceled a gala to celebrate ties between the U.S. and France in retaliation. French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian said that the retaliatory decision to remove ambassadors, which was ordered by President Emmanuel Macron, comes in the wake of unacceptable behavior between allies and partners whose consequences directly affect the vision we have of our alliance of our partnerships, and of the importance of the Indo-Pacific for Europe. He also said it feels like a stab in the back after Australia canceled its roughly $40 billion deal with France for diesel-electric submarines in favor of another deal with the United States. It went on to say, We build a relationship of trust with Australia, and this trust has been betrayed. This is not done between allies. Now, folks, if you'll remember, it was just a week ago that I stated one of the, my greatest concerns about the mess in Afghanistan was what comes next and what, what message have we sent to our allies worldwide. When we should be doing damage control from the Afghanistan pullout 
and sending a message that we will continue to support our allies, we have now managed to alienate one of our longest and best allies in Europe. Don't believe me? Well, how about a little history here? Let's take a look at the history of U.S.-French relations. Now, before Thomas Jefferson penned the Declaration of Independence, America's Continental Congress created a secret committee. Its members were authorized to seek help from sympathetic European countries who could aid in the cause of American independence from Britain. The committee was formed all the way back in November of 1775. France was interested in helping the colonies. Among other things, aiding the Americans was a way to, for France to pay back Britain for using American colonials like George Washington to defeat French claims to North American territory during the Seven Years' War, which we know as the French and Indian War. Now, the result of that war caused France to lose all of Canada and all of its claim to the land in what is now the U.S. from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the Mississippi River. In the early fall of 1776, when Benjamin Franklin was still the most well-known American in the world, the Second Continental Congress chose him to negotiate with France. Well, the now aging Franklin was especially popular, popular in France, where his groundbreaking ideas about lightning and electricity had been tested by the Frenchmen. Franklin was a rock star. He traveled to France with his two grandsons, 17-year-old William Temple Franklin and 17-year-old Benjamin Franklin Bach. Now, although France was already helping the American cause, Franklin asked for more. He met with the Comte de Vergennes, the French foreign minister, on the 28th of December, 1776. Franklin wanted a treaty between France and America, but France was initially very reluctant to do so. After all, think about it. Would a treaty put France in a difficult situation with Britain? Why wouldn't England's King George III and Parliament view a French agreement with America as a direct confrontation by France against Britain? And what if America lost the war for independence? An American victory by December of 1776 was far from certain. Among other issues, General Washington had lost the Battle of Long Island. If America lost the war, would that bankrupt the French government? Franklin continued to keep the American cause of independence alive for the next two years. Now things changed in favor of a French-American treaty after the Patriots defeated the Redcoats at the famous Battle of Saratoga, New York. The negotiators signed the Treaty of Alliance on February 6, 1778. Now, King Louis XVI, whose approval was needed for the treaty to become effective, agreed to the terms the following month. The Treaty of Alliance with France included a term of mutual defense in the event that Britain attacked either France or America. Another term prevented either country from seeking a separate peace agreement with England. Now, although Ben Franklin made a significant contribution to his new country, one of the most important was negotiating this treaty of alliance. France was a military power, and her resources were invaluable during the final years of America's Revolutionary War. 
Many historians believe that America may not have won the Battle of Yorktown, the final battle in the long war for independence, without French help. Now, I would be remiss if I did not include something about the famous Marquis de Lafayette. The Marquis de Lafayette was born September 6, 1757, in Chauvignac, France. He served the Continental Army with distinction during the American Revolutionary War, providing tactical leadership while securing vital resources from France. Lafayette's father was killed in battle during the Seven Years' War, and his mother and grandfather both died in 1770, leaving the young Lafayette with a vast inheritance, but no family. He joined the Royal Army the following year. Inspired by stories of the colonists' struggles against the British oppression, Lafayette bought his own boat and sailed to the newly declared United States in 1777 to join the cause. He was initially rejected by colonial leaders, but he impressed them with his passion and willingness to serve for free, and he was named a major general in the Continental Army. When he first approached, George Washington looked at him and thought, here comes another politician from France, and he asked the young boy, what is it you want? And Lafayette told him, I don't want anything, sir. I am here to learn. That struck a chord with George Washington. Now, Lafayette's first major combat duty came during September 1777 at the Battle of Brandywine, where he was shot in the leg while helping to organize a retreat. General George Washington requested doctors to take special care of the young Lafayette, igniting a strong bond between the two that lasted all the way until Washington's death. Following a winter at Valley Forge with Washington, Lafayette improved his credentials as an intelligent leader while helping to draw more French resources to the colonial side. After traveling to France to press Louis XVI for more aid, Lafayette assumed increased military responsibility upon his return to battle. As commander of the Virginia Continental Forces in 1781, he helped keep British Lieutenant General Lord Cornwallis and his army pinned at Yorktown, Virginia, while divisions led by Washington and Francis Comte de Rochambeau surrounded the British and forced a surrender in the last major battle of the Revolutionary War. After returning to his home country in December 1781, Lafayette rejoined the French army and organized trade agreements with Thomas Jefferson, the American ambassador to France. So there you have the beginning of our relationship with France, folks. The French did indeed fight in the Continental Army alongside our forefathers against the British. In turn, the Americans were early supporters of the French Republic. A Frenchman drew the plan for the America's capital city, Washington, D.C. An American, Thomas Paine, helped draft the French Declaration of Rights. Thomas Jefferson bought the entire middle portion of the United States, the very land most of you listeners are currently standing on, from Napoleon in 1803, in what the Library of Congress refers to as the greatest real estate deal in history. Jefferson got everything from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains for a cool $15 million. That's about four cents an acre, folks. 
And let's not forget that it was the French who gave us our very symbol of freedom, the Statue of Liberty. Frederick August Bertoldi sculpted it. Gustave Eiffel engineered it, and the French public paid for it. It was dedicated in October of 1886. Next came the World Wars. Americans think the United States single-handedly liberated Paris in the Second World War. Well, folks, let's get the truth out there. Americans also think France exhibited simple cowardice by surrendering so quickly to the Nazis, failing to appreciate the losses that the French took in World War I which killed one out of every two Frenchmen between the ages of 22 and 32, just 21 years earlier. I'm going to say that again. Killed one out of every two Frenchmen between the ages of 22 and 32. Folks, when World War II broke out, France didn't have anybody they could send. They'd all been killed in the previous war. Now, during World War I... We were off to the sidelines for most of it playing Walmart and made a fortune selling arms and supplies to Europe while they saw the casualty rate hit 38 million people. It's no wonder the French surrendered to the Nazis when faced by Hitler's overwhelming forces. Now, has our relationship always been good with France? Of course not. We fought them in a quasi-war in 1800, and they failed to support our efforts in the conflict in Iraq. But through it all, France has remained a major player on the world stage. Regardless of our past differences, they are a key ally, and the recent submarine deal, which France refers to as a stab in the back, is just another reason why our allies on the world stage are having serious doubts about whether or not the U.S. can be trusted. So, France lost a lucrative deal to build submarines. Does it really matter? From a national defense standpoint, yes. France considers the Asia-Pacific region to be of key strategic and economic importance to them as well. They have 1.65 million French citizens on islands including La Réunion, New Caledonia, and French Polynesia. In a statement on Wednesday, Mr. Biden reaffirmed the importance of French and European engagement in the Asia-Pacific region. Washington also played along by admitting things could have been handled a little differently, giving a nod to European defense and agreeing to boost support in North Africa. The French ambassador has said he will return to Washington next week. So they're talking again, but a lot of trust is gone. Again, the timing of the New Deal is significant. It comes just a month after the U.S. exit from Afghanistan, when doubts have been raised in multiple quarters about U.S. commitment in the region. Britain, too, is eager to be more involved in the Asia-Pacific area, especially after its exit from the EU, the European Union, and Australia is increasingly concerned about China's influence in their area of, of operations. It's a big deal because this really shows that all three nations are drawing a line in the sand to start and counter the Chinese Communist Party's aggressive moves in the Indo-Pacific. Now, <clears throat> the agreement involves the sharing of information and technology in a number of areas, including intelligence and quantum technology, as well as the acquisition of cruise missiles. But the nuclear submarines are key. They are to be built in Adelaide in South Australia, 
and it will involve the U.S. and the U.K. providing consultation on technology for their production. Now, a nuclear submarine has enormous defense capabilities and therefore ramifications for the region. Only six countries in the world have nuclear submarines. They are a really powerful deterrent, even without giving them nuclear weapons, according to Michael Shoebridge, Director of Defense, Strategy, and National Security at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Nuclear submarines are much more stealthy than conventional ones. They operate quietly and are able to move easily and are harder to detect. At least eight submarines will be supported, although it's not clear when they'll be deployed. The process will take longer due to the lack of nuclear infrastructure in Australia. Again, they will not be nuclear-armed, only powered with nuclear reactors. that makes them very hard to detect. Let me be clear. Australia is not seeking to acquire nuclear weapons or establish a civil nuclear capability, according to Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. So it appears the Australians made the right decision in canceling the contract with France for the production of diesel submarines. But, once again, we have to look to the current administration as to how it was handled. When the announcement came out about the deal, the French were said to be totally surprised. I think they realized that nuclear subs will be a true asset to the defense of the region. But one can't help but wonder why they, as an ally, were left totally in the dark and treated like a third world country. Alliances are a tricky business, folks. You can't simply cast one alliance aside for another. It's a recipe for disaster, and history has proven that time and time again. The Afghan withdrawal, the French submarine deal, even recently the debate in the House about resupplying Israel with missiles needed for their Iron Dome system. All of these issues are being watched on the world stage. Now, I leave you with one question. If you were currently living in another country, would you trust the United States as an ally? How would you like seven steps to improve your critical thinking? Now, critical thinking, we've heard so much about that. That's what, you know, the, our educators are supposed to be providing to our students. But has anybody ever really explained what critical thinking is? It's interesting to listen to a quote that Ralph Waldo Emerson had. He says, what's the hardest task in the world? To think. Thinking is the hardest work there is, which is the probable reason why so few engage in it, is what Henry Ford said. Now, every day I'm amazed at the amount of information I consume. I listen to the news in the morning, check my social media accounts throughout the day, and watch some TV before I go to bed, all while getting constant updates via email and social media. It can be overwhelming. But things get really interesting when some of that information is biased, inaccurate, or just plain made up. It makes it hard to know what to believe. Even with all the competing sources and opinions out there, getting the truth, or at least close to it, matters. What you believe affects what you buy, what you do, who you vote for, and even how you feel. In other words, it virtually dictates how you live your life. So, how can you figure out what is true and what is not? Well, one way is by learning to think more critically. Now, critical thinking is as simple as it sounds. It's just a way of thinking that helps you get a little closer to the best answer. 
Critical thinking is just deliberately and systematically processing information so that you can make better decisions and generally understand things better. So the next time you have a problem to solve, a decision to make, or information to evaluate, here are methods you can use to help you find the truth. Number one, don't take anything at face value. The first step to thinking critically is to learn to evaluate what you hear, what you read, and what you decide to do. So rather than doing something because it's what you've always done or accepted what you've heard as the truth, spend some time just thinking. What's the problem? What are the possible solutions? What are the pros and cons of each? If you really evaluate things, you're likely to make a better, more reasoned choice. As the saying goes, when you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. It's quite easy to make an ass of yourself simply by failing to question your basic assumptions. Some of the greatest innovators in human history were those who simply looked up for a moment and wondered if one of everyone's general assumptions was wrong. From Newton to Einstein, questioning assumptions is where innovation begins. If everyone is thinking alike, then somebody isn't thinking, according to George S. Patton. Number two, consider motive. Where information is coming from is a key part of thinking critically about it. Everyone has a motive and a bias. Sometimes it's pretty obvious. Other times it's a lot harder to detect. Just know that where any information comes from should affect how you evaluate it and whether you decide to act on it. Number three, do your research. All the information that gets thrown at us on a daily basis can be overwhelming. But if you decide to take the matters into your own hands, it can also be a very powerful tool. If you have a problem to solve, a decision to make, or a perspective to evaluate, get on to Google and start reading about it. The more information you have, the better prepared you'll be to think things through and come up with a reasonable answer to your query. I have a personal library of over 3,500 books, and I use them all the time for research. You have access to your local library and an unlimited amount of good information on the Internet. Don't rely solely on Google. The Library of Congress alone is a great source of information. Another great search engine that I use a lot is called RefSeek, R-E-F-S-E-E-K. It contains over a billion books, documents, journals, and newspapers. When you're trying to solve a problem, it's always helpful to look at other work that has been done in the same area. It's important, however, to evaluate this information critically, or else you can easily reach the wrong conclusion. Ask the following questions of any evidence you encounter. How is it gathered? By whom? And why? Our fourth step, ask questions. I sometimes find myself shying away from questions. They can make me feel a little stupid. But mostly, I can't help myself. I just need to know. And once you go down that rabbit hole, you not only learn more, but often discover whole new ways of thinking about things. I tell people all the time, there are no stupid questions. That is how you learn. Sometimes an explanation becomes so complex that the basic original questions get lost. To avoid this, continually go back to the basic questions you asked when you set out to solve the problem. What do you already know? How do you know that? What are you trying to prove, disprove, demonstrate, critique, 
and so on. The fifth step, don't always assume you're right. I know that's hard. I struggle with a hard-headed desire to be right as much as the next person, because being right feels great. However, assuming you're right will often put you on the wrong track when it comes to thinking critically. Because if you don't take in other perspectives and points of view and think them over and compare them to your own, you really aren't doing much thinking at all, and certainly not the critical kind. Human thought is amazing, but the speed and automation with which it happens can be a disadvantage when we're trying to think critically. Our brains naturally use mental shortcuts to explain what's happening around us. This was beneficial to humans when we were hunting large game and fighting off wild animals but it can be disastrous when we try to decide who to vote for. A critical thinker is aware of their biases and personal prejudices and and the influence that they have on objective decisions and solutions. All of us have biases in our thinking. It's awareness of them that makes thought critical. Number six, break it down. Being able to see the picture is often touted as a great quality. But I'd wager that being able to see that picture for all its components is even better. After all, most problems are too big to solve all at once, but they can be broken down into smaller pieces. The smaller the parts, the easier it'll be to evaluate them individually and arrive at a solution. This is essentially what scientists do. Before they can figure out how a bigger system, such as our bodies or an ecosystem, works, they have to understand all the parts of that system, how they work, and how they relate to each other. I think this is a primary reason why so many people have been successful in solving major problems. They seem to have the capability to take complex issues and break them down into something we and our our rest of our fellow man can understand. That is part of critical thinking. Seven, the final step, keep it simple. I'll say it again. Keep it simple. In the scientific community, a line of reasoning called Occam's Razor, O-C-C-A-M-S, Occam's Razor is often used to decide which hypothesis is most likely to be true. This means finding the simplest explanation that fits all facts. This is what you would call the most obvious explanation, at least until it's proven wrong. Often, Occam's Razor is just plain common sense. When you do your research and finally lay out what you believe to be the facts, you'll probably be amazed by what you uncover. It might not be what you were expecting, but chances are it'll be closer to the truth. Some of the most amazing solutions to problems are astounding not because of their complexity, but because of their elegant simplicity. Look for the simple solution first. So in conclusion... Critical thinking is not an easy topic to understand or explain, but the benefits of learning it and incorporating it into your life are huge. So remember these seven simple steps. One, don't take anything at face value. Two, consider the motive. Three, do your research. Four, ask questions. Five, don't always assume you're right. Six, Break it down, and seven, keep it simple. I'll close with one quote. Anyone who stops learning is old, whether 20 or 80. 
Anyone who keeps learning stays young. Again, another great quote by none other than Henry Ford. What do you think, folks? Can you adopt critical thinking in your life? Better yet, can you pass it on to those who refuse to use it? Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thanks for listening to True History with Professor Jim Paisley. See you next time.